the hard shoulder on News Talk with Nissan Subscribe and Drive. No deposit, no compromise, no fuss. Find out more at nissan.ie. Delighted to be joined on the Thursday interview by broadcasting legend Gloria Honeyford. Welcome to the hard shoulder, Gloria. But thank you very much indeed. Does that mean I'm of a certain age when I'm called a legend? Oh, divil a bit. No, it is, it is entirely based <laughs> off the CV rather than longevity. Can, can we start with the, the vital, the profound and the significant? Did you ever get the tattoo? Do you know, I haven't got it yet because nobody can really advise me to the nth degree as to where exactly I should put it. But one of these days, I will decide myself. And then I hear different reports about the tattoo, you know, that it's very painful to get it and all that. But I'm going to get it because I spent most of um, my children's sort of uh, youth saying, you're not having tattoos and you're not having pierced ears, et cetera, et cetera. And here I am in my dotage uh, saying, I'm definitely going to have a tattoo. It strikes me as too good an opportunity to pass up to open a text poll. So if, if you could narrow down the geographical areas that are up for consideration, we could ask That's for listener true. advice if you'd like. I know. Well, I, I think I wanted to be a little butterfly or it would be a nice looking little angel. Sometimes angels don't reproduce nicely. But anyway, there we go. Either or would be lovely. And a suggestion as to where it should be on this body would be great. <laughs> 53106 at a cost of 30 cents if you would like to help advise <laughs> Gloria on that. <laughs> Gloria, can I, can I go back to, because we, we, that term legend is, is, was used advisedly when I, I introduced you. There's, if you look at your career, you have managed to, to book some extraordinary trends. You, you became successful as a woman when it was unusual to become successful as a woman in broadcasting. You became successful with a non-home county's accent when that was unusual, when David Attenborough rejected Wogan because he sounded too regional. Mm-hmm. You maintained success when being Irish was no help and you maintained success in a career that normally is short-lived for quite a decent period of time and still are. To what do you attribute being able to buck so many trends? Well, there are lots of areas there. Uh, first of all, a lot of it is luck being in the right place at the right time and somebody spotting something in you that maybe you didn't realize you had. And uh, and the other point in terms of longevity, because probably I am, well, I know definitely I'm one of the oldest women in regular television as a stand. So the, so the trick of longevity, I think, is being prepared to go with it or do sideways maybe you're never always going to be at the top of the tree uh, prime time but there are many branches going off and it's it's ironic really because we started to do rip off britain uh, which is a consumer program and we did it started at 13 years ago and we are already commissioned until 2023 possibly 24 so that's rather unusual you've got three women of a certain age but then that's where the advantage comes in because you wouldn't believe it if three 21-year-olds were sort of telling you a lot about how you can fight your corners in, in the consumerism. Because we have worked long and hard to keep our noses clean, to build up, you know, a, a trustability, um, etc. We've all been around the block a bit, suffered a bit. So we know about fighting battles in that sense. And so therefore, that's part of the trick. Along the way, there are other ways. I mentioned luck at the beginning. When somebody gives you the luck, you then have to work very hard to keep your luck and to make sure that it gives you longevity. So there are many areas I could also go into, but I'm sure you haven't got the time. But roughly that's the pattern because I was always going to be a singer. I started to sing at the age of seven in Northern Ireland, obviously, when there was no television and homespun entertainment was huge. And I was still going to be a singer and had made a record in 1969 when the troubles broke out. 
And um, it was then that a, a, a BBC official who used to watch a program and listen to various programs when he was in Northern Ireland came along and offered me a job standing in for Jim Young and then ultimately transferred me to Radio 2 nationally in London. So that's a very brief um, overview of exactly what happened. But it was but, luck, somebody giving you the chance, etc. But even that, there's, there's elements of that same thing of bucking the trend, because I, I read you talk about your father, and you, you talk about him with great affection and admiration, but you also suggest that he's he was traditionalist in, I think your phrase was, N no wife of mine is ever going to work. So... I would have thought to, to be the daughter of that man and say, not only am I going to carve out a career, I'm going to carve out a career in a very challenging, very cutthroat area over uh, over the water from where I grew up. That was an unusual well, see, step. Yeah, it is. It is quite unusual. And sometimes I think the word naivety comes into it because um, and don't ask me how I ended up this kind of person. But when I was 10, for example, again, going to Portadown College in the north, um, you know, my, my father was of the ilk, well, you don't want to be a doctor, you don't want to be a dentist, that kind of thing. So why do you want to go to the college, which was regarded to be a bit posh in those days? And, and, and it's a bit sad when I look back on it. But, you know, they thought that maybe they weren't good enough to come along to college events. But at the age of 10, having got my 11 plus, as it was then, I fought for the right to go to the college. And my parents would say, but we haven't got the money for books and uniforms and everything. And, of course, Muggins here said, well, I'll buy them myself because I had been earning money since I was seven, which made me horrendously independent. But at the same time, it made me strong. And so in the end, I won my battle. And, and I don't know why I was so adamant at 10 that I had to go to Portland College to get the best education. But yeah, I was. It doesn't strike one as a necessity if you want to be a professional singer. Well, that's the truth. And of course, I'd been singing for so long. And uh, and by that stage, you know, I wanted to go to Canada and I went to Canada at 17. And now I look back and I think that actually was quite a brave thing to do because my parents said I could go, providing I came back for Christmas. So that was roughly a year. And I only knew my great uncle Jim in Canada. And I went, uh, I'd never been out of Ireland. I went to Liverpool on a boat, which I thought was quite exciting. And then I got on a big liner that went to uh, Canada. But now when I look back, it was quite adventurous. And, but I sort of, I must have had the, the muster to actually make things work because I did make them work. And even got my first chance of uh, singing on radio and TV in Canada when there was nothing really in Ireland, just the BBC. Well, it's particularly gutsy when you figure that all of the, the types of communication that we now take for granted were unavailable. I assume even at, at that stage, the availability of telephones for international calls from Canada wasn't that common. Oh, no. Uh, my my mum had to go to the corner, to the red box on the corner near the shop, and I had to have endless coins to put in. <laughs> I mean, it's so naive. And my dad, by the way, I mean, in those days, of course, times were very different. And you did what your parents told you, basically. But my dad, bless him, used to write me, you know, those blue airline letters. Yep. He used to write to me every single week and tell me that I had to have pride in myself. And although I might fall in love with a lovely looking boy, a Canadian, that I should really be very careful of myself and I should not give in to bodily desires. <laughs> <laughs> and just for the record, not that you need to know, but I didn't. Uh, because then Was that the thanks shame, to the letters and their intervention or well, would that have been the case either it was way? sort of thanks to the letters, <laughs> but you know, you were so afraid of letting your parents down. And the worst thing you could have done in my day then 
because um, I'm talking now about, you know, having been born in the 40s, you know, grew up in the 50s. But to, to be pregnant before you got married or to live with somebody before you got married was shameful. And so it was kind of drummed into you. And I remember a girl at my school, um, she sat in front of me, funny enough, uh, in the front of me in the desk. And I used to look at her and think, gosh, I feel sorry for you because you have an unmarried mother. Now, that sounds ridiculous this, in this day and age. Ridiculous. But in those days, I'm afraid, it was the thing, you know. And I remember in Dublin on a different level, you know, because I do loose women, you know, every week or other week. And a lovely, very elderly lady, about in her 90s at least, she stopped me in Dublin and she said to me, I love, she whispered, I love that loose women. And I said, why do you like it so much? And she said, well, you talk about sex. And she said, we were never allowed to. And of course, she was right. Because if my mother nowadays knew that I was talking about sex live on TV, she'd turn over in a grave. <laughs> but in those days, even your parents didn't really talk to you that much about sex. And so, it, you know, it's just a, a, a strange setup, really. You mentioned standing in for Jimmy Young and then being brought over to Radio 2. That, and you said late 60s, early 70s was, was around the time, which, of course, was around the time that the, the troubles were beginning in, in Northern Ireland. You describe your... In in what I've read before about you, you describe your life at home as as fairly idyllic. Did you feel the troubles change that, or was being in London and with the BBC did it keep you away from that? Absolutely, nothing was influenced by the troubles, and nothing was influenced by London, the big city. I never had any ambition at all to go to London because I was doing a program called Good Evening Ulster for Ulster Television. And we didn't get all five programs in the top ratings every week in our area. We wanted to know why. So it was very successful. And actually, a lot of people in the south of Ireland used to watch it as well. Um, but there was something in my makeup, again, which I've never fully understood. I can never ignore a challenge. And remember, we sat on Hillsborough, where I was living at the time, three children, my husband, Don Keating, then. And we sat around the table. And I remember Don saying, you know, you'll be hell to live with if we don't let you take this challenge. And in a way, how right he was. But here's another strange thing, because I'm a great believer in fate. And sometimes somebody somewhere, whether it's up there or beyond, I don't know, moves the pieces. Because Don and I in our married lives had never been apart longer than maybe 10 days, you know. Um, but at that particular time, I was offered London. And he was offered, as he was a television director, producer, he was offered a six-month job in South Africa. And so, in a way, somebody else decided we would go separate ways. Plus the fact my two older children, they were going to university and college in England. And so I still had a 10-year-old. But I sort of thought, well, if I went to work in London, they could come home every weekend and bring their washing and everything, and I'd see them. You know, so it's funny things that influence you at the time. And what effect did that have on the marriage? It wasn't good because um, I've never believed that... Uh, distances, you know, um, work well. I, I, some people say, oh, distances make the heart grow fonder. I don't really believe in that, but I suppose there must have been a chink in the armour, as it were, for the fact that it broke down. But, you know, Don did, um, after he finished his six-month stint in, in South Africa, he came to London and he started to work on the old nationwide programme at BBC headquarters in London. But he hated it. He hated travelling there. He, he just hated the whole thing. He wanted to get back to Northern Ireland and his golf and and life there, which was lovely, of course. But at that stage, of course, my feet were well under the desk and I didn't want to go back. So in the end, I'm afraid things just drifted apart and that's the short of it. When you say your, your feet were under the desk, your feet were under the desk at a time when 
maybe it is romanticised, you can tell me if the view is correct, but there is a sense that broadcasting both radio and TV in the BBC in London in that period, this is when the greats strode the halls and it, 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 the, the audiences were extraordinary, the guests were extraordinary and the presenters are the names like the Eamon Andrews of this world who, who have become legends decades now, half a century more since their, their death. Was that the sense at the time that you're in the middle of something special? Well, that, that, you see, is where the naivety comes in because when somebody offers you a job in the big city of London and you've been living in Northern Ireland all your life and you're going on your own, as I was with my youngest son, Michael, um, in a way, you think to yourself... I'm, I remember actually being outside Broadcasting House in London, a huge building, of course. I remember looking up at the clock at the top of the tower and thinking to myself, oh, my goodness, do I have to go in here and actually open my mouth and say something? So it was quite daunting. Um, but Terry, of course, had paved the way and Eamon uh, had paved the way for that Irish accent because perceived English was really the thing, you know, prior to that. And and so Terry, of course, was so loved and so liked, and I still miss him to this very day, that in a way he had broken that accent thing. And But but you mentioned the troubles. And, you know, when, I think it was in a very short time, I can't remember the exact date, but I was on air live one day when the bombs went off in Hyde Park and horses were killed and soldiers were killed. It was a terrible day, and I don't remember the finer detail. But I got a death threat that day because um, a couple of guys apparently rang in and it was along the lines of get that Irish bitch off the radio. So, you know, I'm, I, again, when I closed the microphone that day, I, I, was, I got the sense that there were a lot of men in the control room just outside my little studio. But I thought there were just people in viewing what was going on, but it turned out to be security people. And so they took it as a very serious um, threat. And, of course, that, I suppose, is what I had to fight against, you know, when I first went. But it didn't happen very often, and that was an unusual occasion. But the one favour it did was they would never let me park outside the BBC car park. So I was able to drive in there forever and park right onto the building. <laughs> so that was the upside of it. <laughs> Every cloud and its silver lining. But Everything has a silver lining. <laughs> there's a bit in this, though, Glory, that I, I, I maybe I am fair too far, but it seems to be a trend in what you do. You may not be strategically ambitious. So you may not have said, OK, I'm in Portadown and someday I will be interviewing Hollywood stars on the telly in the beep. But I get the sense that when anything landed in front of you, you went at it bald-headed. Oh, that's the challenge. And, you know, and that still applies to this day uh, because I, I mentioned the, the word luck, of course, and, you know, being in the right place at the right time and somebody needing somebody like you at the right time, at that same time, is definitely a factor. But then you do have to work really hard to keep your place. And, for example, with uh, Rip Off Britain, as I said, you know, here we are, we make it for Top and Safety for morning TV, but currently we're in primetime TV because the one show um, is off at the minute um, because it's being revamped or something. And so suddenly we've been going in Mondays and Thursdays at primetime at 7 o'clock right after the news. And so you never know what's around the corner. You never know, even at a certain age, whether you are going to be primetime or not. But I mentioned earlier on that you have to be prepared to go with it. Uh, for example, when Channel 5, late at night, was sort of regarded as a semi-porn channel when it first started, and they offered me a job, which turned out to be open house, and somebody said to me, a couple of agents said, Are you, you're mad going to work for Channel 5. <laughs> now, hang on, let me put this in context for people who may be unfamiliar. If I remember at the time, Keith Chegwin was doing a nude game show on that channel, wasn't he? 
He might have been, do you know, some, honestly, I hadn't even watched that. So but. some of the programming was on the, let, let's put it nicely, the risqueer side. Oh, it was. And definitely late at night, they had semi-porn movies and things, you know. <laughs> so some agent would say, are you mad going to work for Channel 5? And I said, well, look, it's going on, you know, uh, it's going to be called Open House. They've given me an open book as to what I can do on it, which, again, is quite a, a thrill within TV. And their money is better than anybody else's at the moment. Well, that program ran for five years very successfully. I don't mean that from a bumptious point of view at all. But it was the highest rating program apart from the news on Channel 5. And, of course, Channel 5 now is absolutely steaming ahead and everybody's trying to get their documentaries and their programs on Channel 5. So that only endorses my point that at times you have to take a chance and you have to, in my case, abide by the challenge and go by your gut feeling. And that gut feeling, you know, is still standing me in good stead in terms of the programs I'm doing. And I love it. I mean, my youngest son often says to me, for goodness sake, why don't you just take it easier and stay in... in um, France, we have a family home between us and France and go and stay in France for a few months. And I went, I love going to France, but I don't want to stay there for three or four months. I want to work because I learn something every day. I meet new people every day. I'm challenged by it every day. I read stuff for everyday work. I like it. I, I listened to an interview that you did a number of years ago where you, you were you got the, the usual sort of questions of who was your best interviewee and, and who was your most difficult and all the rest of it. But in the midst of it, one of the questions was the sort of the one that got away. Who would you like to get hold of? And as the question was being asked, I was running through a possible list of the great and the good who it might be. The answer slightly surprised me and I'm curious as to whether or not you who, ever... Who would you, who would you like, for example, in your life? Who would your number one be if you could? By God, that, that I am, I, I'd actually have to consider it. I'm trying to think who would... I know. Well, because you see, time, I find everybody interesting. Because I, 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 yeah, you immediately think celebrities, and they're, they're not necessarily any more interesting than somebody who has had no, a not. recent I rich experience. But the one that but you were named was Bono. There, there, is, there is a thrill, though. I mean, I'll tell you, one of the earliest thrills when I was still in Northern Ireland was I wanted to interview Frank Sinatra because I knew that he never gave interviews. And I flew to London at my own expense and I got my tickets at the Festival Hall and the, his bodyguard had come from Northern Ireland originally and I thought, I'm in here. I'm in. <laughs> I'm going to get it. And Because uh, I rarely take no for an answer. I try not to take no for an answer. And um, so the closest I got was the bodyguard. <laughs> so that didn't work. So that remained, of course, uh, one of my ambitions. Then my other ambition was to interview Doris Day, which actually I got to do in 93, uh, because I wanted to be Doris Day when I was going to the pictures all the time when I was a young girl. I, I wanted to sing her songs. I wanted to have her clothes as I got older. I wanted the boyfriends. I thought they all looked fantastic. And in the end, in 1993, uh, uh, a record uh, friend of mine, a uh, producer friend of mine, rang me and said, how would you like to interview Doris Day? And I went, go away. Don't be ridiculous. She hasn't given an interview since 1968, which she hadn't. And he said, well, they found a lost record and she's doing an interview. I cut a long story. I was on the plane the next day to L.A. And she was brilliant. You know, she was so open and just as I imagined. And that was a thrill. But I was very, very lucky because with a, a chat a program called Sunday Sunday, which ran for nine series blocks of 16 programs at a time. And uh, that was in the late 80s and early 90s. You know, I got to interview people like Audrey Hepburn and Kirk Douglas and, uh, you know, Charlton Heston and all these people at the time who were major movie stars and real men as far as I was concerned, ones that I was watching when I was a kid. So, yes, it was a thrill. 
Uh, but to fully answer your question, I always wanted to interview Margaret Thatcher, not as a politician, but as a woman. I always wanted to interview Princess Diana, but I never got that chance. And look at the, the documentary that did get the chance and the, and the controversy that's been over that of late. Um, but you're right. You see, some of the most memorable interviews come from people who come in off the street to tell you their story. Finally, do you, what's your relationship now with home and with Portadown? Do you, do you feel Irish? Do you feel British? Do you feel French? Well, I love, uh, I'm always Irish at heart. Um, I love going back to Northern Ireland and there's always birth, deaths and marriages, you know, like in about two weeks time, I'm going back uh, for uh, a group called Action Cancer. They have what's known as the big bus and that goes to the end of people's streets to give them mammograms and things like that to detect uh, or at least to clear, hopefully, breast cancer. But in some cases, of course, that's how people discover they have it. But I'll be going over there for that. And then we still have a small apartment in beautiful Dorky. And so we haven't been able to get there for the last year and a half. And uh, so we look forward to tying that up in the north and then going down to well, to Dorky. I, I can give you news of Dorky. It is in the news today that the large house at the end of Sorrento Terrace has just gone for 10 million. And apparently it indicates that high-end property is on the move again in Dorky. So if you want to cash in the apartment, Gloria, Whoa. this may be the moment. I, I want to confirm that I do not own a property of that ill. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I did. Um, but no, I love going back. Sadly, my parents died in their 70s. So that was a shame, awful shame. And my sister also died in her 70s. And once your close, close family depart, you know, the pull back to Northern Ireland on like every month or whatever it is sort of disappears. Um, but I do go back at every opportunity. And I've really hated not being able to go back. And during the lockdown, it's been awful. My husband, Stephen, and myself, um, we didn't kill each other during the lockdown. But, uh, you know, we, you discover things about <laughs> your yourselves, don't you? I don't know whether you discovered that or not. But but actually, you know, we we really sort of liked each other during the lockdown. And and we ended up, you know, locally just doing things that maybe we would not have done otherwise. So it wasn't all lost, if you like. But I'm glad that things have opened over here anyway. Gloria, it has been great fun talking to you. If you want to make suggestions again as to the region and nature of the tattoo that Gloria needs to get, it is 53106. That is the one and only <laughs> Gloria Onifert. And that is pretty much it for us this evening on The Hard Shoulder. We'll be back here live on News Talk from 4pm tomorrow. <laughs>